Our scripture passage today as we continue to look through the book of James together is found in the beginning of James chapter 3. If you had a Bible, I would encourage you to turn with me to that passage and read along as I read aloud from God's Word. James chapter 3. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Let us pray. Dear Lord, as we come to your word, we realize that you are today speaking to us about a topic that has application every moment for each one of us. Because you are speaking to us, Lord, about what we say and what we teach and what we learn, how we use our tongue. Lord, we ask that our hearts would accept the message that you have to speak to us this morning from your word. And I pray, particularly in teaching from this passage, Lord, that my tongue, my words would be faithful to your word, which is holy. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. There's few topics like this one, which as you go into looking at it, is it speaking about the tongue and the use that we make of our tongues. So many examples come to mind. All you have to do is think about the tongue, its right uses and its wrong uses, and your mind starts teeming with literal examples from your own life and the lives of other people. Well... As I began to consider this passage, something that immediately jumped into my mind, and what we'll be doing this Sunday is specifically looking at the first verse, the first two verses, as they are in the context of the whole, but specifically addressing the first two verses. So teaching is addressed here. So the thing that, in looking at that passage, immediately jumped to my mind is my teaching, specifically my preaching. Last Sunday, for example. Now, what we are told in this passage is, just generally in a nutshell, if you're teaching, you had better watch out. Isn't that a good way to paraphrase it? If you're teaching, you had better 
watch out. Watch out what you say. So, this past Sunday, as I was preaching and considering it afterwards, I thought in my mind, I said, okay. Nathan spoke of the tongue as deceitful above all things. Well, that's a reference to a scripture passage, but it's not right. (laughs) It's not the tongue that is deceitful above all things, but the... Right. Very good. The heart is deceitful above all things. And then, a little bit later, I spoke of Abraham's wife being Rebecca, (laughs) which, of course, is wrong again. And then a little bit later, I spoke of James chapter 14, which is an impossibility. And I'm not going to tell you how many chapters there are in James, because I might say it wrong again. There is great power and influence in teaching. We realize that. One of the times when I was impressed with the fact of the power and influence of teaching was in a very somewhat, uh, sort of somewhat unpleasant way. I remember in seminary that my brother and I had a friend named Howie, who was also my painting partner. And Howie had bought a bike at a seminary bike sale. What they did was they, they told everybody on campus, if your bike is, in, is not in such and such a spot, we will be collecting all the bikes that are stray bikes and auctioning them off to the seminary at large. Well, so Howie went to that auction, and oh, he was tickled pink. He got just the bike he wanted. <clears throat> and he showed us his bike, and he went over all the details of his bike. Well... <clears throat> A little bit later, about a week later, he got a call from someone in the seminary saying, "Uh, we made a mistake. (laughs) We sold someone's bike (laughs) to you. And the details started working out. And I can remember, and it's one of those things you think back about after the fact and say, I told someone, you know, what I thought they ought to do in that situation. (laughs) Circumstances show you how wrong you were. And so my brother David and I said, well, we don't think you ought to give that bike back. It's their fault for selling this poor fellow's bike when it was, the circumstances were muddled enough that I can't even remember them. But, but the fellow had a right to his bike, and they, they goofed somehow. They sold his bike. Well, my brother David and I said, well, Howie, you know, we think, you know, if the, as the situation played itself out, this bike is yours. They need to straighten things out with... with with the fellow who really owns the bike. And, uh, well, then we learned a little bit more about the situation, about the fellow whose bike it was, and about all these things, and we started feeling really badly for the guy whose bike had been sold. Well, we had done too good a job of talking to Howie. (laughs) And by the time the situation unfolded, in all of its details... And it became so obvious that what really should be done in this situation is, is how I should be gracious and say, here's your bike back. You give me my money, I'll give you your bike. I'm sorry I didn't get the bike. Well, we had talked Howie into a corner. And by George, he wasn't going to give the bike up for nothing. They had made a mistake, and they were going to pay for it, and they were going to straighten it back, straighten it out. How many times have we realized 
in teaching someone something, in talking with someone, in presenting a view to someone, when we got through, we were wrong. Does it happen? It happens to all of us. And if we don't realize sometimes that we're wrong in what we were teaching someone else, then heaven help us. Let us look at the context of James chapter 3, 1 and 2. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. Now, we say, oh, not many of you should presume to be teachers. Then I should not be teaching. Well, teaching is a big word. What does it include? Well, in this context here, specifically what it is speaking about is teaching principles of our faith to people in a teaching context, in a church sort of context, in a Bible study study sort of context, in which you are set up as an authority because you are a teacher. The apostles called themselves teachers at various times because that was their role and responsibility. They had to teach the words of Christ to people and communicate them correctly and And tell the people how they were to be applied. Now, why do we need to look at this context here? Well, because we need first to understand that it is speaking of teaching the principles of the faith to people who don't know Christ for the purpose that they might come to know Christ or people who do know Christ for the purpose that they might grow in knowing Christ. What happens oftentimes when we look at the passage like this is is we, given our culture and what's going on in our world today, say, yeah, you're right, you know, teachers do so much of a better job than I would do. This is not speaking of parents in the context of the home. You understand that? Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, is not speaking of parents in the context of the home. In the context of the home, and this exclusion needs to be made because we are living in a culture of professionalism today where everybody says, well, I can't do that. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a teacher. In the context of the home, parents are the teachers of their children. The father specifically has the primary responsibility to make sure that the children are taught. Both the father and the mother participate in this teaching of children in the home. And the father and the mother are responsible for what is taught to the children, regardless of where it is taught, because God has given parents a primary responsibility for their children. He has not delegated that responsibility to teachers. And so when... And this is here we go using the word again. So that when we send our children off to school, then we can say in our minds... My responsibilities ended. I just hope they get a good education. Wrong. There are specific areas in Scripture, for instance, Deuteronomy 6, where we are told as parents that we have the responsibility for teaching our children the things of God. The whole context of Scripture is such that it gives us the understanding that parents are responsible for their children, for their children's welfare in every way. And so realize... This is not talking about people, parents, saying, oh, well, this is good. This means I don't have to teach my kids. No. Scripture as a whole says parents are responsible for the teaching of their children. 
whether they take on the whole role themselves or whether they delegate it to others, they are responsible for what's being taught. Now, why am I jumping on Am I jumping on that one with both feet? <laughs> okay, maybe I'm jumping on that one with both feet. But the reason behind that is because of what we find in this passage. And what we find in this passage is this, that there is such a grave danger in that culture, in the next culture, in the next culture, all the way on up to our culture and continuing until Christ returns for teachers to teach the wrong things. That is the context of this passage. What was happening? Many people were trying to teach. Why do you have to give a warning? Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers. Not many of you should presume to be teachers. Why that warning? James was aware of the circumstances. The reason for that warning is because many people were presuming to be teachers who had absolutely no right to be teachers teaching God's Word to people. And so that's why I'm jumping on, for instance, with both feet, the emphasis that parents are responsible for the teaching that comes into their children, whether it's in their home or elsewhere, in the school, in the church, wherever. Because there is a danger in every place for, for people to teach the wrong things. That is what we're looking at. <clears throat> Why do people teach the wrong things? Why do many people presume to be teachers? We've got a firestorm raging in our country today over who is going to teach the children, for instance, in the public schools, and what is going to be taught the children in the public schools. Why is there a firestorm over this little issue? Who in the world... You might, many people might say, who cares? Just teach them this, that, and the other, and they'll learn. The reason for the firestorm raging in our culture is that because people have grasped the fact that whoever does the teaching controls the future. Whoever does the teaching controls the future, as well as the present. <coughs> as well as the present. <coughs> if the teaching is right, then the future will be going in the right direction. Now, obviously, there's many equations, many equations in this factor. But if the teaching is right, you have a certain guarantee, at least, that things haven't gotten fouled up before people begin to put them into practice. At least, they've learned the right thing. <clears throat> One of the, the, the question that uh, in our young couples class that I asked this morning was, what do you remember beginning school. What what memory do you have of beginning school in any grade? <clears throat> different people have different memories about school, but school is a large part of life. And whoever controls what is taught controls what will happen in the future. I remember being in second grade and <clears throat> I had a problem with how to spell who. Who, how, just those words. Well, how would you spell who? H-O-O? -O? I mean, there's many different ways to spell it. Think about it. And I can remember the teacher finally, one day she kept me after class, and this was just a mental block here. And she kept me after class, and she wrote one thing on one side of the board and had me go around the other side and just back and forth around the board to get this thing straight. And it had to be knocked into my head. Who is H-W-O? No, 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 no. <laughs> 
Who is W-H-O? You thought I hadn't learned it yet. Who is W-H-O? And it's important for people to get these things down straight. Who could come into Andrew's math classes in college having learned incorrectly that 2 plus 2 equals 5? Or 2 times 2 equals 7? It would be impossible. Andrew would be... He's already torn most of his hair. <laughs> Maybe that's what's going on. But see, that's the point. <clears throat> There's a firestorm raging in our culture because people have grasped this fact that whoever controls what is taught and who is teaching will control the present and the future. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> I believe that there are certain cultural reasons for that in this day and age because frequently the teachers are the most constant area in a, in a child's life for nine months out of the year. <clears throat> but this is the reason <clears throat> that we need to realize that this message continues to be for today. Is it a message for us? Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. It's a message for us on two fronts. It's a message to us first on the first front, which is a specific literal front that it's talking about. Not many of you should presume to be teachers. It's a message to us as well because of why it needs to be mentioned. Because of the fact that there is much teaching that goes on and much danger of us sucking up teaching that is incorrect or giving out teaching that is incorrect. <clears throat> now, we find throughout Scripture that there were people who were teaching incorrect and therefore ungodly messages to God's people. There are many examples throughout Scripture. There are references, for instance, to Korah's rebellion when the people in the Exodus, when the people left Egypt, and Korah rebelled, and he told the people, he said, it's not just Aaron who can offer incense before God. We can all do this. We can all be high priests. What happened to Korah and the various and sundry followers? They, the ground opened up and they were swallowed alive. Some of them were burned to pieces because God sent his divine fire down upon them we see evidence throughout scripture that false teaching is perilous to the people who are teaching it and it is also perilous to those who accept it we find this warning in Ezekiel 33 <clears throat> this is one of the most frequently quoted passages the word of the Lord came to me Son of man, speak to your countrymen and say to them, When I bring the sword against a land and the people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not take warning and the sword comes and takes his life, his blood will be on his very own head. Since he heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning, his blood will be on his own head. <clears throat> If he had taken warning, he would have saved himself. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes the life of one of them, that man will be taken away because of his sin. 
but I will hold the watchman accountable for that man's blood. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die. And you do not speak out to dissuade him from his ways. That wicked man will die for his sin. And I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man, for instance, what he's speaking of is the blowing the trumpet. If you do warn the wicked man to turn from his ways and he does not do so, he will die for his sin, but you will be saved yourself. What is our problem? <clears throat> well, we see from this passage an illustration of what we have read in James chapter 3, the latter part of verse 1, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. That is what Ezekiel 33 is speaking about. Teachers are going to be judged by God's highest standards. We find throughout Scripture that the more that we know, the greater will be our punishment if we don't do it. Those who have little, know little, will be beaten with lesser stripes. Those who have little and know much, have, have much and know much, but don't do it, will be beaten with greater stripes. This is a serious warning. <clears throat> what is... What is the problem then? <clears throat> we look around. We have to look first at home. We look in a wider circle as well. And we find frequently as we're talking about Christian education here, specifically what is taught about Christ, we find in seminaries and churches today that so many people think that their positions are meant for dabbling or experimentation. Thinking up the newest interpretation that fits the Scriptures molds it, packs it into our cultural preferences. Rather than saying the Word of God is timeless, it doesn't change based upon the age in which you live. So many people want to take the culture and fit God's Word into the culture. That is false teaching. You must take God's Word and you must apply it to the culture because God's Word is timeless and the culture is continually changing. The Corinthian believers, for instance, had decided that grace meant complete license to do things that even the heathens weren't considering to do, doing. So this is an example that the problem is not just here for today, but it's a timeless problem. The Corinthians were seeking to fit God's Word into their culture and to base what they thought was right by looking at their culture instead of looking at God's Word. Teaching God's Word is the serious business of communicating the living Word of God to hungry people. <clears throat> what is the solution? Well, the solution is spoken to us clearly. Not many people are to be teachers. If you are a teacher or considering being a teacher of God's Word, you need to consider whether God has led you to teach or you have taken the responsibility upon yourself without His power and strength and direction. If you are a teacher or considering it, you must make sure that you, as you teach, your teaching is informed, directed, and guided by God's Word. In other words, it's not opinion. It cannot be opinion. Because God's Word is the authority, not my opinion or anyone else's. 
You must make sure that you practice what you preach. Because the moment that you that you stop taking seriously the message that you give to others, your teaching has fallen from God's standards. And you must be bold to confront what God confronts. That is what we get from Ezekiel chapter 33. The message there is, I'm going to give you a message which people don't like to hear. What are you going to do with it? <coughs> are you going to proclaim it? Are you going to say, oh, blah, blah, blah. Didn't like that one. Knew you wouldn't like that one. So I just decided to mumble off so you wouldn't hear me. No. If we have the responsibility, if any of us are teachers, we must be bold because we're acting for God. We're worried about what people will think about us. But what God decides regarding us is of eternal importance. Will we tell the difficult messages? Or are we just going to say, have a nice day. Be good people. Try and do the best you can do. That's not good. According to God's word, when he says, I'm going to give you a message, then you had better deliver the message. And the further solution in not many be teachers is that there must be some teachers. Because God has called some people to teach. And if God has given you that spiritual gift, I don't mean teaching in a school. Again, we're talking in the context of teaching God's Word. If God has given you the gift to teach, then do it. Do it. Because if the people who God has given the gift to teach do not do it, then who will do it? People who say, oh, well, I need a teacher there. Oh, no. I'm going to teach. Or I think I've got a good idea for that. The people who are given God's gift to teach must be the ones who stand up and say, I will do it. Even though it requires training and it requires a strict discipline of life and obedience to Christ. And it requires constant monitoring. Further solution. And this is on the flip side of it. Because we realize that teachers can frequently teach the wrong things. You and I must examine our teachers. Do not let your teachers teach you, your family, your friends, your children without listening to what they're saying and testing it by the previous tests. Do they teach according to Scripture? Now, I think there's a broader context here. And this is why I'm speaking about the firestorm regarding teaching in our nation. I think we always have to ask that question. We don't expect to be taught Scripture in the public schools. But we do expect at least the principles will follow scriptural principles and not be contrary to scriptural principles. When they are contrary to God's principles, then we have got a problem as Christians. We have got a problem which we have to straighten out because what is taught to our children is too important for us to let them be taught contrary to God's Word. Test. Do they teach according to Scripture? And test. Do they believe what they teach? How do you know? I believe it's illustrated by their joy in what they're teaching. If there is no joy, if there is only judgment in it, then I think you've got an example that the belief in what they're teaching has never been there or it's died, and it needs to be rekindled. And another test, is their lifestyle consistent with what they're proclaiming from God's Word? 
In testing our teachers, you and I need to be aware that we and our families are not to tolerate or sit under teaching that is unbiblical, teaching that consistently leaves out, for instance, the difficult parts of Scripture. If you went into, for instance, a movie theater and they didn't have any fire signs up and they had no warning at the beginning of the movie, saying, for instance, as we saw a movie just a few weeks ago, take a moment to look at the fire exits. You will see red signs indicating where they are in case of emergency. And you realized one day when you were sitting in there that there was a fire. And a voice came over the loudspeaker that said, Keep your seats, please. (laughs) We have a fire, but please keep your seats. (laughs) Well, if you ever got out, you wouldn't go back there again, would you? Unless it was, you know, only a minor fire. So why in the world... Would we even consider th- con- consider sitting under teaching that is unbiblical where we would find that if there was a warning of the sword coming against us, that the person isn't going to stand up and say, watch out, watch out. The person's not going to stand up and say, fire, get out. <laughs> we have got a problem. Do not sit under teaching that does not focus attention on Jesus Christ and glorify Him by pointing to Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation. Because that is the ultimate message of Scripture. Finally, this encouragement I would give to you is something that people practice in many ways. Pray for your teachers. If you're a teacher... Be humble in prayer that your teaching will remain faithful to God's Word. If you have teachers, then pray for them because they have a heavy weight of responsibility. And the teaching needs to be anointed by the Holy Spirit's power both in preparation, delivery, and the application of the listeners to have its glorious and powerful effect. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that your Word would come to life in our hearts. We pray for each one of those in our congregation, Lord, who teach your word. That each one would be faithful to your word. That each one would first look at your word and see how it applies and affects their own lives and live by it. And then with that godly wisdom and understanding, teach others. We pray, Lord, for our kids, that you would protect them and give us wisdom to be a part of that protection. That they might not suffer and have their lives dreadfully affected by teaching that is ungodly and flies against your principles in Scripture. We ask, Lord, that you would cause those who have been given the gift of teaching to be uh, bold to stand up and to teach. We pray for each teacher and each student, Lord, as we are each one or the other, in every context and situation, that you would be the one who gives us grace for our responsibilities. In Jesus' name, amen.